Welcome to Barrels and Burbs with hosts John Engel and Roberto Cabrera. Over the next hour, you're going to learn some insider knowledge that will help you overcome and strategize in the cutthroat world of real estate. Now, here are your hosts, John and Roberto. Welcome, everybody. Episode 100. This is a major milestone, and we have a major, major guest this week, Jonathan Miller from Miller Samuel. Every year, Jonathan has to evaluate about $5 billion worth of New York real estate and crank out market reports every month on each of, what, 50 markets across the country? Yeah, it's about two, a little over 200 reports a year. 200 reports a year. Nobody knows the market better than Jonathan Miller. And I can't wait to get into the show. We're going to have a free form discussion where we pin you down with 100 questions in rapid fire format. But first, <laughs> I have to I have to thank my host, uh, my, my sponsor, gracefarms.org. I want everybody to know three things about Grace Farms. They should come out to New Canaan. That means you, Jonathan Miller, because I know you're a suburbanite now. Come on out to New Canaan, visit the 80-acre campus, check out the river building. It's beautiful. Second thing you need to know is that they've got the design for freedom. They're trying to clean up uh, the building, uh, well, the building materials industry. So find out what that means at designforfreedom.com. And number three, if you want to give a closing gift to all your clients, you can get their fabulous sips and drips, teas and coffees at gracefarmsfoods.org. And with that, let's start our show. Roberto, good to see you. You're looking mighty casual you, in always. August. <laughs> Just came out. I'm in Southampton now, so uh, a little, a little bit of a breather from the city. This is as mm. ca- this is as casual as I get, Roberto. <laughs> I better adjust that. Fair time. enough. Well, there you All go. right. Where do we want to start? I think we're going to have to start with the two with the outrageous headline pulled from your most recent housing notes. Jonathan Miller puts out housing notes every Friday where he finds the best of the internet and the best of the market reports out there. And you talked about spurious correlation and you talked about causation and you talked about uh, how this had really resonated with your economic students at Columbia University. What does that mean, spurious correlation? Well, it just means that you can literally compare anything against anything and the line trends the same on the chart, but it doesn't mean they have anything to do with each other. Um, and you know, I uh, just finished my class. I teach a summer semester of market analysis at Columbia, about 150 students, and it's really fun. And one of the things that I'm always amazed at is, um, and, and actually the students at by the end of the class, I always, I always uh, tell them, and I got this from a professor at Yale, that uh, any chart without a source on it is a lie. Um, in other words, you don't know where it came from just because it looks nice doesn't mean anything. And then it kind of goes along uh, with this idea that you can chart anything. I mean, literally, you can make numbers work. You can visually do anything you want. And um, and it's ridiculous. So so what I'm trying to teach, what I try to teach the students is to look at things with a very critical eye um, and, uh, you know, don't allow that into your brain if it's not, you know, compelling or convincing. Um, and that begins with understanding where the data came from. So that's my, uh, and then I throw in a few dad jokes. 
<laughs> so I, I guess the reason that, that it resonated with me is because all of the realtors in this country and, and all the pundits on TV are wrestling with causation and versus correlation. And they, we want to understand what is causing prices to go up in some of sure. our markets, but not consistently. Um we want to understand causation. And I think that we see on the one hand, the Fed tightening and mm -hmm. raising rates and trying to put downward pressure on the market. And they've been un largely unsuccessful over the last couple of years. We're beginning, to, but tell me if I'm wrong, we're beginning to see a flattening, but not necessarily a decrease in, in most of these luxury markets. So In terms of pricing. You're in saying, terms of yeah. pricing. Right. So across almost all the housing markets that I cover, the uh, the trend is, or the pattern is almost the same. And, and the way to think of the pandemic era and, and later as we move out of it is uh, the word distortion, that a lot of the rules of thumb that realtors grew up with throughout their career have been thrown out the window. Um, and the first thing that uh, sort of defies logic, and I remember seeing a lot of national economists at the beginning of the Fed rate hike uh, series were saying, oh, we're going to see prices correct 20, 30%. And it was like, no, the reason why they're saying that is because they don't see the most important data uh, metric of the current situation is inventory. And, and so because mortgage rates were kept too low for too long, in my opinion, people are wedded to their rate and they're, they're, they're kind of stuck. Uh, you know, they don't, you know, they have a 3% 30-year fixed and they're not going to, they're not willing to go to a seven um, unless there's a major change in life, you know, that's in their face. Um, and on top of that, we, today we're publishing uh, elements publishing our rental research, the rental, our, we're looking at the city rental uh, situation and uh, all time rental prices, records reached, you know, the fourth time in five months, we've had a, rec a median record rent, 4,400 a month and almost 6,000 for average rental uh, per month. Um, that's the highest we've tracked since 08. And you're going, you know, what, why is this just going up forever? Why, why is this happening? But then, and, you know, and boy, I hope they cut rates soon because that'll bring people back in the purchase market. But the reality right now is unemployment's at three and a half percent. I mean, it is rock bottom low. We have a pretty strong economy, um, but housing has disp been disproportionately impacted by the ri rise in rates. Um, other sectors, not so much. So we feel like, you know, as a market, we're under siege, but relative to the rest of the economy, the, relative to the rest of the economy uh, not so much. So let me just, what, what I think I hear you saying is it doesn't matter what the Fed does. It doesn't matter because they can go from seven to eight to 12 or back to the misery index of of a you know a couple decades ago it doesn't matter yeah. what the what the fed does when you have too few houses and you're only go, ever going to get a trickle of new inventory 
on the market for the next yeah. several years as the gap between current mortgage uh, that I could get and the current mortgage I'm paying is so great. You're saying it doesn't matter. Well, right now, it, in this scenario, it doesn't seem to matter. Or it's not that it doesn't matter. It's that what didn't. So normally, what happens is in in a down, you know, a downturn, and downturn defined as rates spiking uh, significantly. And so the first thing that happens is transactions slow. And so inventory piles to the sky, but inventory didn't pile to the sky because the fact that mortgage rates were kept too low for too long, that by raising rates at the fastest clip in 40 years, people are wedded to a, you know, a 3% or a 2.75% 30 year fixed with the option of, hey, if I go out and buy, it's going to be 7%. Um, so they're going to take much longer to make those decisions. It doesn't mean they won't. And actually, uh, uh, the one thing I think that's really important to understand is in this market with realtors, it's easy for me to say, but you know, patience is a virtue that over time, people acclimate to what rates are. They're not like, yeah. hey, if they never go down yeah. to three, they're always going to see rates as super high. Um, but over time, they acclimate, and I think that's already happening a little bit. Um, but again, we're still looking at you know a long process to sort of change that thinking. I'm I'm finding that in the marketplace as well, especially with the new buyers, the new buyers who never saw three percent, they exactly. don't even know that that exists. And this is just the landscape with which they have to deal with, and that's how they're pursuing along. And then all the other people, you know, life happens. People get divorced. They have you know people kids leave the house. People have the downsides. Eventually there's going to start to be cracks in that dam where people like life has to start churning and it has to keep going. And some of those rates aren't 30 year fixed. They're five year, 10 year arms. Well, you, well that's going to reset. And then Roberto, then that is, too. that is such a key point because I just remember in past cycles, uh, you know, it was very common to get a five year one or a 10 one or a seven one. And, uh, and but with rates being so low uh, during the pandemic, that uh, you didn't need to do that. <laughs> it was just you know they were basically on the floor, and so just pick something that's conservative, and you're sort of locked in. Um, but that's been in many markets that I've been through in 38 years. That's been a big part of the world is like alternative to the sort of plain vanilla. Um, one, one thing I was doing an interview a couple of weeks ago and the comment was made, you know, right now in Europe, we're seeing, especially in the UK, we're seeing housing prices really fall. And that's because everybody there find it, variable rates are the norm. In this market, in the US market rather, uh, it's all about fixed rates. And so people are kind of locked in. That's like you're locked in for 30 years or you're locked in for 15 years. Um, so, you know, you don't care. And it, because there's such a difference between what you bought your house at and what the rates are now, you're kind of, you know, you have like this built in savings or something, whatever, however you want to phrase it. 
Um, so it's a really it's it's a unique moment in financial history. It's like um, having a rent stabilized apartment. You kind of get locked yes. in. There's people who stay in a rent stabilized apartment for 30 years, but they never bought, so they built no equity, and they you know so right exactly like right right. So it, it, if we can all agree that rates are having less and less of an impact, the fact that we're getting used to 7% rates and people have to move. And so the causation of rates is not as great as it would be. Let's talk about some of the other things that might break us away from this cycle of rising housing prices. One thing is I'm looking at Hobbs Inc. there. Builders might start building. Builders might start saying, we have too little inventory and we're going to um, build. Um, and, and, and zoning boards across the country, such as in California, where they recently approved accessory dwelling units, um, as P&Z loosens up around the country and allows builders to build, What's it going to take to get builders to build? Right now, they're afraid of lumber prices and commodity prices and labor prices. What's it going to get? What's it going to take to get builders building again? Well, uh, so you can see right now nationwide, uh, the larger builders are buying down rates and it's been extremely successful. So a seven-year seven 30 fixed is now 52 um, for, you know, like on a four or $500,000 house for $25,000. And they can do that at scale. And that's been incredibly effective. The other, the other. Wait, where, sort of, where is that happening? Wait, where? Uh, not in New York City. Not no, in, no, no. I'm not saying it. nationwide, like uh, uh, in the Midwest, on the West Coast. Uh, I'm reading about it every day. It, like it's a, and I, I've talked to a few builders Um that's an option, it, it, but it, it tends to be skewed towards the larger builders. Um, the other thing is that when you look at inventory in a market, you know, historically, whether you're talking about New York or you're talking about national, uh, new construction is, like, you know, around 10%, sometimes 15% of total inventory. In many markets now, it's 30 to 50% because it's not that more homes have been built. It's just that there is so much less existing product that you have this sort of, you know, an overshare of new construction, um, uh, which is solving, you know, part of the demand, the demand challenge, um, uh, which, you know, is just another distortion created by uh, this pandemic era, you know, with the the change, the dramatic change in interest rates. Are we still short 5 million homes? That's a number bandied about for the last few years that over a 10 year period, we've built 500,000 uh, too few homes every year for 10 years. And it was a long time to get us into this trough and it's going to take us 10 years to get out. Is that well, right? well, so yes, uh, yes, that's true. But I think actually it's, it's, it's worse than that. <laughs> And what I mean by that is when you think of land prices and construction costs, um, the development product nationally has skewed more luxury or more higher end as a whole. So if you're talking about like middle class or starter homes, that's a much tighter inventory problem related to new construction than anything else. I would love and to have Hobbs speak up now on exactly that that paradigm because Scott has been running the uh, housing authority here in my hometown 
and therefore he's um, been charged to make a few hundred affordable housing units. And he said, uh, well, why don't you tell us, Scott, what's the economics of building affordable housing now, given that we need it and builders want to build it and towns want to have it? Um, how's it going? Well, I mean, you, you have a problem that that first off, again, construction costs are elevated. Uh, borrowing costs are elevated. Creating affordable housing is more expensive than creating normal housing. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles. Um, and then there's no magic bullet for how you work the economics of these things. So if it costs more to produce um, and then you can't charge rents that actually pay for what you're producing, unless somebody gives you know, makes up that economic difference, you're not going to get it. I mean, it's just you can't function. Um, you know, for our housing authority, we're able to issue bonds, but the bondholders actually want to get paid back. I mean, imagine that. <laughs> and if your pro forma doesn't work, they're not going to actually loan you money. And that's the same for the banks. So, so with rising rates, housing, so with rising rates and bonds getting more expensive, meaning you have to give a larger money for the bond, you're looking at, uh, let's, let's get specific. I think you were talking about when you began your term, $400,000 per unit was the construction cost if the, if, if the municipality gave you free land. But you can't build units for $400,000 each anymore in, in, in this area. What's yeah, it costing we, now? We, we think we're well over five hundred. dollars I mean, it hasn't been tested. Our data is now two years old. But as, as an example, we did a two-phase project that, that one phase was done in 2021. And that went really is kind of smooth as silk. And the second phase, the builder basically lost all of the profit from phase one and from phase two. And then that, that's how disastrous it was. It was a total catastrophe in changing prices. And that was the 500,000 builds you what? The 500,000 builds you what? Two bedrooms? Uh, we'll say two on average, units? a two-bedroom apartment inside of an apartment building that has some amenities, but relatively basic amenities. Okay. All right. I didn't want to get too far down the affordable housing route, but it's got to affect how you're thinking about the market, Jonathan Miller. When you're putting out these market reports and you're talking about uh, too little inventory. We're not just talking about the luxury market. We're talking about all markets. Oh, all markets. Um, it's allowed me to pull out my old chestnut uh, word or terminology is inventory was obliterated uh, during the pandemic. It, it, it didn't decline. It was wiped clean. And, uh, you know, the price of land is very high uh, in our region. Um, I'm looking at my myself. Um, which is always that's fun. That's you on CNBC. That's you on Bloomberg Television saying the pandemic wiped out housing yeah. inventory. Says exactly. Miller. You heard that's it here it. first. That's it. How does that's that, it. Jonathan? How do, how does that happen? Where were people living before? These homes got all taken up by their second homes. Uh, no. So the way to think of it, uh, uh, I don't know if this answers your question, but the way I think of it is, I think of inventory as this sort of blob it's just a moving object uh that grows very slowly over time that's based on the life cycle of the occupants you know empty nesters trade move up you know um you know new relocation whatever whatever it is and so when you take this uh massive tsunami of demand caused by you know two point 
seven, 5% 30 year fixed mortgage rates combined with people sitting in their houses for two years, dreaming of getting more space, it wipes inventory clean, you know, and, and, um, and I think a bigger factor was the fact that we have too many millennials on the planet. Much bigger, <laughs> well, much, much bigger factor than interest rates. Fed doesn't matter. We just all had too many kids at one point, and now they're all at the point where they want I a house. Have, are you saying I shouldn't have had four kids? You should not have uh, had four for kids. your homeowners. You brought this on us, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, I I'm trying to feel bad, but I don't. Um, but but I but I do think that uh, supply was no match for you know I don't think people realize I mean outside of the brokerage community how insane the frenzy was um, nationwide and uh, and then all of a sudden you know that gets turned off and people are sitting with very low rates and they're not going to move and that's kind of where we're we're sort of stuck so so like. The way to think of this, like, how do we get out of this is um, I think we desperately need a recession or some kind of adverse economic condition to bring uh, rates down a little bit. They're not going to be down where they were. In fact, to sort of simplify it, I know I know you're like, hey, we don't care about the Fed, but but we kind of we can't do anything about it. They're going to do what they're going to do. But think about right now they're talking about maybe one more 25 basis point maybe two and then what happens they sit still for a while and what happens when they sit still for a while uh mortgage rates drift lower not dramatically lower instead of being at seven maybe they're at six and a quarter but that's going to bring more people into the market and when that brings more people in the market you're bringing in more inventory um you know, really, the only the only thing that's going to bring people into the market faster than what Roberto was talking about with uh, you know change in life plans, um, you know, over time, is that when rates lower, like I think the long term sort of level they're going to be at is in the mid to upper fives. I think that's where they probably should be. I think we've overcorrected. Um, but you and know, that'll maybe be that's, in 2025, right? Not yeah, that's a couple of years from now. That's right, exactly. It's not now. Um, that's why I say patience is a virtue, you know, when we think about you know how the ebb and flow of rates and demand and supply. Um, but but really that's what's gonna bring people in. So and it's you're not, just it's, now at the you're at the major question that everybody is on has. All of my buyers are sitting there saying if rates are going down. And you know what they're going to do. They're going to go to, what did you say, five and a half? They're going to settle in at five and a half. I mean, yeah, probably. And it won't happen until 2025. So all the people on this show who are going to watch this on YouTube over the next couple of months are are going to lean in on what you're going to say next. Does it pay for me to wait for five and a half percent rates in 2025? Or are housing prices going to continue to rise substantially? Because there's so many millennials and there's such a great uh, uh, labor market and so many other good reasons that that prices are going to continue to rise. And I'm going to miss out if I wait for the rates. 
Well, now you're you're asking me to think like a broker, right? In terms of how to how to how to how to sort of sell. The room is full of brokers. We want yes, you exactly. to do the hard work for. Well, us. listen, I was a real estate agent for six months in 1986 in Chicago, um, and so I have a deep, extensive knowledge of what it's like. Uh, no, um, the way to the the way I think of it is, it's a longer term window. I give you an example. One of my and this sort of speaks to the economy. Um, I, I I think I've told you before, like I, I moved to Ridgefield, Connecticut um, from Darien. I'd lived in Darien for 32 years, loved it, became empty nesters. And three of my sons had houses, not in necessarily in Ridgefield, but in the vicinity. So we were a little closer. We moved. It was great. And then two months later, two of them got big job offers in Florida and Boston, and they moved. And um, and what they said to me was, uh, yeah, we're going to buy where we go, but rates are going to drop in a couple of years and I'll refi then. Right. And I'm thinking, wow, that's I don't know if I totally buy that, but I like I like the spirit. Um, but the, the thing that happens is if, if you wait, it's like that my head of my newsletter the last time it was like. Are you waiting to buy next year? So is everybody else. And that's what right. becomes difficult is that right. you then throw yourself into a pool where you're elbowing around with well, everybody and the, and the prices just continue to gravitate and your, and your opportunity to get it is the, the probability of getting it just gets diminished. Well, you're, you're, it's herd mentality, right? And uh, yeah. one of my sons, is a, he's a police officer, but he's also for years was a volunteer fireman. And he used to say, um, you know, they're the ones that run in when everybody's running out and, uh, you know, sort of a little contrarian thinking, um, which I, which I get. I mean, I think I told you when I was on before that, uh, I don't know what this has to do with what we're talking about, but, um, we, my wife and I overpaid, uh, we'd be 30 people for a house and I knew rates were going up. Um, I only Think we paid overpaid about 36% based on the list price. But I think we really only overpaid 15%. Um, and we're going to be in the house for at least probably a decade. So who cares? Um, other people don't maybe have that luxury, but we got the house we really wanted. Um, and so I think time has to pass for people to get comfortable with the higher the higher rate environment. And um, and also and, there's a whole group out there that aren't going to move at all because like me, my rate's 275. I'm not going anywhere. Right. So, so you say that now, but say something major happens or whatever, yes. and you want to move and it's five years from now, mm -hmm. chances are you're probably going to move like at some point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you I'm going to move to New Canaan so I can be with John and... and, and <laughs> I, but I live in Rowayton and what, whenever I sell, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a nice profit. Yeah, of course. Right. All right John, so curiously on your, on your house, if you were to have waited and bought that house today, where would you be in regards to what you paid? Um, it's actually more expensive. I think See? It's a little, it goes back right. to the point before you wait and then you right. would have not built the equity into it in the, in the time period that, that has already passed. You would have just thrown that yeah. money away on rent or something else. And the other thing is you can't not put value on is your enjoyment of that house. Every like you, day, it, my wife and I, when we come 
you know, pull up to the driveway to the house or we're leaving the house. We both look at each other and say, boy, I love this house. Like it's a weird, it's the weirdest thing. Um, uh, no regrets whatsoever, no cognitive dissonance, nothing. Um, but that's us. But, but I think, you know, the people like I'm sitting there and we just couldn't get our, our house we sold on the market fast enough because of supply chain, because we had to replace seven glass, you know, sliding doors and all, and like half of them would be delivered after two months and two of them are broken. You have to reorder, you know, it's just like forever, uh, you know, part of our house where we gutted was like open to the elements. You know, you can't show the house with like a blue tarp covering one of the walls, you know, that kind of stuff. So you couldn't, but at the same time, we we wanted to get you know to buy so we did everything wrong um you know in that context of we we acted after the rates began to rise that's when we put our house on the market you're in connecticut i'm in connecticut but half of our market is sitting there in new york saying wait a minute is the rest of the market having a party and they didn't invite us <laughs> new york might be having record rental costs right now but Roberto yes. says that they're that uh, they don't have an inventory problem, right? Roberto, you don't have an inventory. I think. I, I think. Well, inventory is. I think it's fair, but it's it. You know, and I've been thinking that it was it was more ample than it was, and I've really looked at it recently and studied it a bit more. And we are a little bit below the running average for probably the last ten years. We're a little below that, so it is a little tight the inventory, but also the inventory, you know, it's the quality of the inventory. A lot of it's old product that needs That's a lot of thing. work and things like that. You know, it's the new uh, stuff. Actually, uh, I think you are, uh, actually, I don't think if you <laughs> like, right. Uh, because... um, I, I can tell you with inventory. Uh, so um, there's a sort of a rich history of the, the Manhattan inventory relative to the rest of the country. It goes back to the pandemic and uh, Manhattan was late to the party. Uh, the, the suburbs, everything was flying off the shelves. Um, the pandemic, we were the global hotspot. And until there was a vaccine and, you know, the, the mindset changed about the city, it reacted about nine months later. So then when the Fed raised rates uh, a little over a year ago, it interrupted the boom that uh, would have taken place like the suburbs did. And so as a result, inventory was not wiped clean. It was reduced, but uh, as Roberto, you were saying, the the levels are not chronically low like we see in Westchester and Fairfield County and yeah. um, New Jersey and Long Island and virtually the entire US. Um, in Florida, it's the same story. In California, it's the same story. Texas is the same story. Um, Manhattan is probably one of the better places to be an agent to sell at the moment because there is more product. The problem is that a lot of the new product that has come on, I wish I could quantify this better, um, you know, the sellers haven't capitulated to the, the new conditions. And so there's a lot of product that's not priced right, disproportionately more than we would typically expect. Wait, prices are going to rise generally across the country, but you're saying in New York, they're over. it's overpriced? No, I'm saying that uh, inventory is elevated. 
in comparison to most of the U.S. It's not high. It's sort of Goldilocks, right? Just right. Uh, but the rest of the country is insanely low. And when I say the rest of the country, you know, obviously every single market, I'm sure there's markets where it's not as low. Some are lower than others, but literally all the markets that we cover, it is, um, you know, uh, Westchester is like the third lowest inventory totals um, since the 1980s. Like it's just, it's just gone. Um, it's just not, not there. And that's, that's different in the city, in the city in New York, not Brooklyn or Queens, but in, in Manhattan, inventory uh, is not chronically low in the same way. It's, it's sort of, you know, just right. So Roberto should be killing it. He's in a balanced <laughs> market, right? There's no excuse. It's not, I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's a fair market. It's definitely a far better market for buyers now than I do anticipate it being in the spring, because in the spring, I think there's going to be more normalization of people being accustomed to the interest rates. I think there's going to be a lot of people. That it's, it's now just that time to jump in. Uh, it's that breaking point that people have been patient and they, their life just moves on and they have to start transacting. You know, I have a guy, Poor fella, he, he bought this apartment. He got a seven-year fixed mortgage where, where it was going to it was uh, it was going to adjust. He was going to sit and he was going to own the apartment for approximately seven years. He was going to sell at the very beginning of 2020. He was about to go to market in February of 2020, and then COVID hit, ruined it. So then he he goes back and he starts to he 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 looks to resell his apartment last year at about May interest rates spike yeah, loses spike. the marketplace again yeah. and now his 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 interest rate has adjusted from like 2.8 it's now seven something and he's dying he just he's like i gotta get out of here so right. he's just every every he's hit every bad pothole there is well i also i think uh roberto like it's not like the people in the manhattan market are oblivious to you know, how much rates have gone up and, there, you know, there's an uncertainty, um, you know, despite having more supply than, say, the typical suburbs surrounding New York does, there's still sort of the, you know, the the, the psychological impact of um, and, and, and higher rates itself. What, one of the things that has happened um, uh, a couple months ago, we reported that, uh, I uh, can't remember, it might have been May or June, uh, that uh, cash buyers in terms of market share in Manhattan were the highest in history by far. It was two thirds were cash yeah, buyers. Yeah, you posted like 59% of deals, something like that. Yeah, posted. yeah it's a big, it was a big number. Um, and uh, and so there was like this, hey, everybody's just paying cash, right? And it's like, no. It's that there are fewer people getting mortgages, and that's making the cash share expand, right? Like, you know, you can have fun with numbers, like we said at the top of the show. Yeah. Um, you know, you can, you know, there's, that's a little bit of a misnomer. So is deal volume... I mean, deal volume is below the average right now. I mean, granted, it was it's distinctly different from 2021, but even from... April, May of last year to now, it's below the average. Yes. So just for general context, 
uh, over the, if you look at the, because the most recently completed quarter, second quarter, uh, deal volume over the last decade has averaged about 2,800 transactions, and we had just under 2,300. So it's it's a little bit less. Um, it's not a record low, but it's less than normal. Um, but then as is inventory, the, a little bit less than normal, a little correct. bit less than transactions. But then if you look at, you know, during the boom, you know, uh, let's call it 2021, you know, uh, uh, sales activity was double, you know, but it had it had surged way beyond uh, norms. It was about 4,500 units, more than double. Normal is, you know, just under 3,000. So, um so you know that's the that's the pullback, right? The spike in rates, uncertainty, and the interesting thing about this, uh, and I, I think it's lost in translation, is you know I've said before that you know the Fed is basically just beating the economy with a baseball bat, like trying to cause higher unemployment, um, trying to create damage, and we saw some evidence of that with the SVB banking crisis. First Republic, you know, Signature Bank, uh, uh, Credit Suisse, like we saw some damage, but it didn't didn't uh, expand. That was sort of isolated. So they're trying to create this damage because the economy is so vibrant, so strong. And what do you need to buy a place? Well, you need a job generally, and you need an you know you, you need uh, adequate wages. And what's really interesting to me, and maybe a little wonky, but for the last 30 years, employment or wages themselves have been a deflationary factor, meaning that um, now we have wages expanding, which I think is wonderful for, for the economy. Um, but that also translates into home buying. It's just that you have this very sort of visual impact, economic impact in your face that, hey, mortgage rates are seven, they were three, you know, it's a lot more expensive, I'm going to wait, right? Even though I've got a job, I'm making more money than I was a few years ago, it's, you know, it's, there's like a tipping point or something that needs to sort of um, create. And I think the tipping point is going to be when the Fed stops um, raising rates not cutting, just stops raising. I think that's going to stabilize that be any things. minute now, right? But, any but, can, but can we talk about one that? One or two more there, times, probably. It, it, once they even stop, like I think it's going to remain sustained for an extended period of time because if the, if the economy is running so hot and, they're, and they're really the, the emphasis is to slow it down, how can they lower them uh, at all? Yeah, I mean, unless you have unemployment rocket up to eight percent or whatever, which seems ridiculous. So that, so I agree with you. So I think the more important thing to think about is stability in rates, and that mortgage rates will, you know, sort of naturally drift lower, and people will have acclimated to the or are in the process of acclimating to this sort of new level, um, and not sort of hoping we go back to two point seven five. Um, you know, as a rate. And I, and I think we see activity pick up because we'll also see inventory pick up a little bit too. So um, the, Fed, the Fed holds, okay, I'm gonna, the Fed holds rates 
what causes rates to come down to five and a half by 2025? Is the economy just going to be that strong? I mean, what is the impetus? What is the causation or the what is the causation for rates to come down? Um, so it was that we were going to have a recession in six months. But we were the economists are saying that for the last two years, like every month, it was like, yeah, we're going to have a recession in the next six months, and then the next month will go by, yeah, we're going to have a recession in the next six months, and it's been two years, and no, we haven't, you know, and and in the last uh, Fed uh, meeting, Powell, Chairman Powell said we don't see a recession in the near near term, so it's not going to be like this massive event where we're gonna we're gonna have all these problems. I think like everything, it's just gradual. I think the sort of the key word in economics right now is gradual or slow in terms of change, uh, you know, as opposed to this sort of knee jerk, you know, hey, spike rates. So now we're going to cut rates. It's not going to What does a presidential election do to the housing market? Well, um, in, uh, in Manhattan, I did a study about five or six years ago and, uh, and it distorts quarterly trends like during a during election year. I don't know if this I haven't done this for Fairfield County or Westchester, but if Manhattan, it it definitely, um, uh, you know, I'd looked at over the last 30 years, 25 years and looked at the parties and um, whoever is the winning party um, uh, in Manhattan, because it's heavily Democrat, uh, you you have this sort of weird distortion where um, leading up to the election, the three or four months prior to election, there's an unusual slowdown in activity. And then in November, no matter who the party is, there's a massive release that goes all the way through into the next January or February. But it all comes out even in the wash. It's just sales activity gets distorted it's, a little bit. It becomes much much ado about nothing. Everybody is like, oh my gosh. And then here come the ducks and they all pass. And then everything just keeps going as normal. That's correct. So what you normally expect on a federal election and a less to a lesser extent on midterms is a little bit of pullback after like 4th of July through the through early November. And then December, there's a re massive release uh, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in the other year. You know, the the odd year, the even year for the you know the federal election, either midterms or or the nationals. Um, that's agree. that's what that's what I've seen happen. So it doesn't change pricing. Um, ultimately, the year end totals are probably unaffected. It's just this sort of slowdown and release um, that occurs. So, can we talk? I think. Uh, the biggest story to me by far is just the fact that the interest rates have just absolutely obliterated everything and certain things have broken. There was a couple of banks that broke um, and everything's kind of warped. The general rules of thumb, like we were talking about that, you know, that we rely on. Mm -hmm. But it seems like what's breaking most is the housing market because it is disproportionately. And what other what let's just say interest rates went to eight and a half. What's next to break or what happens? What's, what should we be looking at? 
mean you're like on the edge of the abyss and you're, you're gonna die <laughs> like sort of like that no i uh I don't, um, I really don't Like John, John mentioned, it doesn't matter. They go to 12%. It doesn't seem like it's going to matter. Is that true? Well, I mean, to sound like an old person, when I first entered the, uh, you know, out of college, you know, mortgage rates are like 18%. And, and when I became a real estate agent, they were at like 13. And, and I did a lot of business. Um, you know, so... What's different here is that the rise in rates haven't had a dramatic impact on pricing. And so uh, like it has in Europe where they're, they're relying on a variable rate. Um, so I, 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 I would think um, that inventory is not going to get fixed um, unless there's a big change in interest rates, interest rates go down a lot. You're going to see a lot of inventory come into the market and prices may even, even with a lower rate could even soften prices a bit. Um, the one thing I learned during this pandemic is that lower interest rates make housing, um, uh, lower interest rates make housing less affordable, <laughs> um, because it removes inventory. Uh, disproportionately, the, the, at least in this cycle. And um, people don't think that way. They think, hey, lower rates makes it more affordable. But the buyer and the seller are getting the same news. It's not like it's a secret that lower lower rates mean you can sell for higher. And then- I think lower the, rates means more competition. Yeah, prices yeah. And, and, you get rid of, and you get rid of inventory because sales outpace the ability of inventory to- sort of grow, then you get disproportionate housing increases. Uh, for example, um, you know, uh, the last couple of months nationally, we've seen prices begin to rise. You know, they, 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 they slid single digit from peak, uh, uh, you know, pandemic peak, uh, you know, before the red, the fed took action. And, um, and now rates are, are in, uh, sorry, prices are starting to trend up again. Well, you know what's trending up again? Bidding wars. You know, the market share bidding wars in Fairfield County is like 46% of the transactions that closed in the second quarter. I'm calling that from memory, but it's somewhere like that. And um, during peak, it was almost 60%, you know, a year and a half ago. Um, is that um, true everywhere? Is that true in Dallas? Is that true in Palm Beach? Are we seeing Palm? I, I, I know that sort of in County. So, so for example, in Southern California, like I cover uh, LA County, Orange County, and San Diego County. And I can't remember if it was San Diego or Orange, but they were both about pretty similar. Um, we were looking at like almost 70% bidding wars, you know, market share of closings, uh, you know, a year ago. And in some submarkets, it was over 90%. Um, in Florida, not so much. It's more in the 30, 35 percentile because they had more supply coming into the pandemic than uh, the, the, the New York metro area did. Um, so I would say to sort of stereotype the whole country during the peak, which is just before, you know, call it the first quarter of 2022, that bidding wars across the U.S. were probably the market share range from the lowest I recall seeing would be around 20% and the highest was 
you know, for an entire region was like 65, 70% with sub markets going even higher than that. Now, um, all those markets have come way, came way down as rates rose. So they were only 20, say a market that was 50% was 20%, which normal is like 5%. So 20 is still a big number. Um, and that's because inventory never really, you know, came out onto the market. So you still had bidding wars. And um, and now we're seeing bidding wars really ramp up again to be more than in some, I, I'll bet you next quarter, the markets like, you know, Fairfield, Westchester that were like in the 40s could very easily be over 50 um, as so, a market share. So let's recap. So what I'm hearing is interest rates will fall over the next 18 months. They'll go flat and eventually they'll fall but not fast enough and not enough to warrant waiting, waiting for the market to correct. So don't wait because market because interest rates aren't going to be enough for us. The second thing is we're experiencing um, bidding wars and in Fairfield County and a lot of desirable markets, submarkets across the country. We're starting to see. Um, 100%, people are paying 100% on average uh, for the next um, decent listing. The, and, and I say that by decent, meaning it's uh, modern, it's nice shape, it's highly desirable in a good neighborhood, it's not obs functionally obsolete. We're going to continue to see those bid right up to 100% of asking, maybe even a little bit more. So for the next 20 months, we should expect bidding wars. These millennials coming out into the market for the first time should expect bidding wars. They should steal themselves to it and say, I may have to bid more than once before I find a home. It's just part of the new reality, right? Right through Correct. That's, that's an absolutely correct assessment. Don't get discouraged. Set, set your expectation right now that you're going to lose three or four or 10 times before you get your house. I agree. Okay. Musical I have tears. to ask you about greedflation because you said, <laughs> because you put it in your housing notes. Greedflation, because you did just say uh, our wages just went up and that's part of the reason we're spending more on housing. But right. our wages didn't go up that much. They didn't no. go up as much as housing did. No. So what's going to happen over the next 24 months? Are our wages going to continue to go up? And yet no. housing is going to fly. Well, I, I think I think wage wage growth is already uh, uh, easing or cooling, but not dropping like a stone or anything like that. Um, I also, you know, the the part I found interesting about great greedflation, my um, that was uh, uh, a, a good friend of mine, Barry Ritholtz, who has a radio show which I'm going to be on in a couple of weeks um, called Masters in Business. And he, he has a blog that all of you should look at called The Big Picture. And uh, it's basically macroeconomics. And uh, he's one of the smartest people, you know, aside from you guys, one of the smartest people uh, I've ever known. He's a good friend. And uh, the whole thing about greedflation, you know, this idea that, you know, people are just jamming prices higher. Yeah, that's it. Um, uh, Ritholtz.com. Um he, uh, I think he still has that orange overcoat. Um, so he, uh, 
the the whole point about greedflation, and there's a lot of talk about that during the pandemic, where people are jacking up prices, you know, because people are desperate, you know, uh, you know, supply chain issues and all that. But the thing about greedflation is that if you, you know, if you're willing to pay that, but just be irritated, you're part of the the reason there's greedflation. Like, you know, it's like you're part of the problem. <laughs> because you're willing to pay that. If no one was willing to pay those prices, then they, you wouldn't see it. Are we I just thought that was the end of greedflation where people are not yes. willing to pay up for new cars? Yeah, we're cars? already we're already seeing that. Um but there's still not, gonna pay it's not gone. Us. It's not gone, but it's still there. Yes. It's like the restaurant well, in I, the Hamptons. Yeah. You have I you go back to Manhattan and you're like, wow, this isn't so bad. Right. I mean, it's it's right. incredible. I have a lot of relatives. My wife's from Michigan and I go there and, uh, you know, we go visit family and my 93 year old father-in-law and like, you go out to a diner there for breakfast and it's like free <laughs> compared to here. It's, it's like, it's cute. You want to leave them more money. Yeah. It's like, you know, a family of four can have like a breakfast for like $15. It's like insane. We only have one minute left, and I can't end the show in Michigan. Take me back to New York, the center of the new known universe. We have a balanced market, but in New York and San Francisco, you got too much commercial real estate and not enough residential. Are we going to start to see a shift? Well, so I think what we're going to see in the commercial world, and this is what's confusing everybody because we have like record rents, high housing prices historically and then we've got half empty office towers so yeah. you know if how you rely that, on castle data right? yes yeah, so you're looking at that and you're going how does this make sense and you're seeing you know certain restaurants in midtown packed and sidewalks you know it's it's i wouldn't say it's back to norm but tourism is almost back to normal levels um, but you have empty office towers and i won't bore you with just having gone through new office space um, you know, I'm paying like 45% less than I was before the Can pandemic. Can we repurpose that space as housing? On the fringe, there's actually a white paper that just came out um, that's pretty good about, um, I'll have it in my notes uh, tomorrow, um, about, uh, you know, what what are you, you know, repurposing the space? And it's only about 5 to 10% of commercial office space is suitable to repurpose. And the, the big reasons are the cost to convert to residential um, is problematic. It's almost a non-starter right then. Um, the other is changing zoning. And one of the bigger problems, especially with the bigger office towers, is the floor plates are too big. You know, unless you want to have apartments that are 20 by 400, um, you know, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't really work. Um, you can see some of those layouts, like with one, one, uh, uh, the former Bank of New York building. One was at one Wall Street, um, where you have on the lower floors the floor plate so big they have these really long apartments that don't kind of don't really work. So the the challenge the challenge is you've got you know oversupply of office in theory are underutilized and then you've got an undersupply of housing you know uh, affordable housing so hey and it's not getting work. fixed right and and so the way i think of it and this is again a longer term is that you're going to have 
like when I was looking for space, you can't, the land, most landlords can't drop to market rate because then they can't pay their debt service. So what happens? We have a Eventually crisis. they go, they go under it, you know, someone takes a financial hit and then it tr gets transferred into stronger hands at a much lower rate. Then you have New York City seeing this massive inbound of people that are used to be priced out that can, you know, that will take office space, maybe smaller, you know, amounts of it. Um, but, you know, if you go to market, you're going to bring it in. And that's why I'm not worried about the future of New York. It just has to go through these machinations over the next five to 10 years. We got to have you back. There's so much more to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I think this is great. I think we've uh, lost our, our our the folks at uh, Voice America, but because um, <laughs> it's already four o'clock. But uh, oh, gotcha. we don't have to end this because I'm still fascinated with. So what I hear you saying is we're not going to solve that by repurposing that space. Uh, Pete Mikulski right there in, in the cell below you on the call. He's a designer and he works with all these fabulous designers. No amount of redesign is going to fix that floor plate issue. We are not going to all move into what was formerly a Goldman Sachs cubicle. Not going to happen? They can't, uh, we can't I, fix this with design? Listen, anything's possible. Just the studies that come out have come out so far suggest that it's a pretty small portion of the total product. And the bigger product for un the bigger reason for underutilization is that the the lease prices can't go down to market because of debt service. And and the ones that can negotiate probably have very low debt service, have been in the family for years. Um, but th that's definitely the challenge. Like you know the. But the, once uh, I buy that office tower for pennies on the dollar. I can either knock it down and build housing and hope zoning agrees that we can build housing in the middle of a commercial zone, or I try and redesign what I have. Well, if you're going to do that, that when you think about it, like Midtown office towers, think about it from a, in another way that um, there's, you know, typically class A, B, and C. The upper half of Class A isn't going to see much rent damage. Um, it the the commercial market has become the best, and all the rest, and all the rest are looking at twenty to fifty percent cuts on leasing and on a per square foot basis, and very nominal at the very top. So it's a much more bifurcated commercial market in Manhattan than um, than it it was before the pandemic before work from home it's not as simple as the stanford mall repurposing retail as pickleball courts yes right it's not, not that, that not that simple right well like if you took one of those office towers and made every floor pickleball court i think you'd have oversupply you'd have too much inventory <laughs> but People i love pickleball that. I love that, I, but I look to the Japanese model where in Tokyo, where they have too little space, uh, they got innovative and they started making micro apartments and yeah. micro hotels. And, they and tried I'm wondering that whether that's before. coming to New York. Well, that, that was tried five, seven years ago. And so the idea would be, hey, you know, you build 400 square foot apartments um, at 2,500 a foot. Like that was kind of the the idea. The problem is land costs are still 
the problem. Like land is still, you know, like when you think about housing costs, it, and this is, don't, don't take this the wrong way. It's, I'm not being condescending, but land appreciates improvements, buildings depreciate. So when you see your house selling for more in New Canaan, uh, it's because land grows in value, not the house itself. Um, and the problem is that land prices are very, are too high um, to make like affordable housing work and giving us the, you know, that landowners like, you know, like in, in New York City, you, know, you have the patriarch dying on his deathbed and the kids are surrounding him and he's saying to the kids, whatever you do, never sell right i mean that's kind of i'm having a tough time and maybe i'm just not smart enough to figure this out to reconcile two opposing ideas in my head but you have just laid out the fact that housing prices is due to rise for the long term maybe for the next five or ten years we have too little and it's too expensive to build and i'm trying to reconcile that with the same timetable where commercial real estate may be in decline, decreasing. And you're saying that, that that we can't marry those two problems together. Uh, we can't basically accommodate rising housing prices with decreasing commercial prices. Well, I, I think you can on the margin, but not wholesale. Like I, I, I think it's it's it just doesn't fit. Um, um, and also, I'm not saying that housing prices are going to go up for the next decade. I'm saying that at least in the near term, that there there's no solution for supply that we can see. It doesn't mean there won't be, but the probability seems to suggest that housing prices aren't going to correct um, in the near, in the near term. That's the way I would think of it. Why won't they, if we have 73 million millennials and they're now approaching the age approaching 40 the, the 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 majority of them are approaching 40 and needing larger homes to accommodate kids more, more and larger kids listen i have three millennials and one gen z and i don't understand any of them so i don't i don't know and they all want houses or apartments three, in- three of them own houses and one is living his best life at 24 years old in Manhattan. So, How long will that last? From 24 to what? For the typical well, one? Uh, I would say within four or five years, he'll be married. He has a, a long-term girlfriend. You know, they're talking about it. And they're going to buy a house. Like, they already have the money for a down payment. Like, they are super focused on it. So, um I raised them to buy houses, apparently. I love that. That might be the best ending yet. I've raised them <laughs> to buy houses. And every realtor on this call loves hearing those words. I raised yeah. them to buy houses. Well, I, I believe there's it. nothing more to be said. Thank you, Jonathan, for another you great show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Fantastic. Anytime. How, I... and, bef- and you should get the last word, Roberto. How is it out there on Long Island? Is it still... Is it still paradise? Is it is it tough to get a, a reservation on a Friday night? Oh yeah, impossible. impossible. Are the beaches crowded? The best reservation is the grill right outside. <laughs> yeah. And the beach. You look relaxed. I think that's as big an advertisement for being out on the eastern half of Long Island as anyone could hope for. 
only been here three hours, so it's going right. to get a lot better. <laughs> Enjoy right. your long weekend. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Right. Thank you, Roberto. You bet. Thank you for having me. See you all next week. See you, week. Scotty.